This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. I'm Amir Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History in Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Penn State. And I am joined today by my friends and co-hosts, Jessica Luther, independent writer and author down in Austin, Texas, and Lindsay Gibbs, sports writer for Think Progress in Washington, D.C. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. Good morning. Hello. How are you all doing today? Uh, awake (laughs) (laughs) i'll take that (laughs) the fun continues you know (laughs) so we have a great show for you today we're going to be doing updates updates and updates giving you all the latest on the world cup action as well as checking in about wimbledon we also will do a scholar spotlight as i interview ashley brown on her upcoming book about althea gibson And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about NBA free agency mayhem, as well as WNBA stars reaction to it and some general trolling that happens around women's basketball. And of course, we're going to highlight some people that we want to shout out and burn things that need to be burned. Before we get into it, generally... All of us, especially, I always think Jess and Lindsay are like co-presidents of Serena's fan club. So I just wanted to hold space to allow for some conversation about how amazing Serena is on and off the court, particularly on social media and in her answers to reporters this week. I feel like she just proves over and over and over again why she's so amazing. Yeah, she's been killing it on the court, which is very exciting. And I'm sure we'll talk about, but also, yeah, she did a couple press conferences where the videos went around one. She responded to that deadspin piece that showed that she is drug tested way more than basically anyone else in tennis, but certainly way more than other female tennis players. And she had this great line about how she, and it was the way she delivered it, like, because there's a pause in the middle, but she said something about how she despises people who cheat who dope and you know she was talking about Sharapova and she was trying to find like the right way to say it was so real yeah it was spectacular how how she did that and then yeah she had this great thing after her last match about being the best in tennis and what that means and how she always has to raise that everyone raises their game to the highest level in order to play her so she's always raising her game beyond theirs and that makes her even better all the time and it was just like whoo And then she put that thing in a graphic and she tweeted her quote out as a graphic. It was great. (laughs) Which is like the ultimate, you know, I really appreciated that quote. Just like everything about it from her being like, I'm glad Madison said that because she's so smart (laughs) to to bring that up. (laughs) But also to go on to say like, oh, I don't even scout anymore because I'll watch them play other people and they're not playing them how they're going to play me. And I just thought that was really honest. Yeah, she's on an honest streak in a way that I deeply appreciate. I finally watched all of Being Serena on HBO, which is really the vulnerability of that. And then she had a tweet this week about how she missed Olympia's first steps while she was practicing, and that made her cry. And I just, you know, the thing I always think about it is she's given such a gift, like to see your own sort of struggles as a person, but also mother, like reflected in the greatest living athlete is quite a thing. And she does not have to do that. And I just find that to be a remarkable turn now in her career, that she's giving all of that to us, all that truth. Indeed. And I think it's really great because it's such a wonderful platform she has. And these are issues that 
you know, people talk about all the time. I've had numerous conversations with working moms about what it's like to miss first steps or first words or all these things. And a lot of times those conversations are very insular. And to have Serena tweeting about them knowing the eyes of the world are on her, I think is really important. And so I'm just like, (laughs) you're amazing. So obviously the World Cup is rolling along and we just finished the quarterfinals. So Jess, what's going on? You want to give us a a brief uh, recap, overview, thoughts, concerns, questions, anything? Yeah, so eight is now four. We have our semifinalists for the Men's World Cup. So this upcoming Tuesday afternoon, which is exciting for us because we we record on Sunday, but we actually really get to talk about what's going to happen and you guys get to hear it before it happens. So this upcoming Tuesday afternoon, France is going to face off against Belgium, followed by the England-Croatia semifinal on Wednesday, which means no Brazil and it's an all-European field. I don't want to do a ton of recap because there's like too much to say, I think. But I do want to say that the Belgium-Brazil game, it was just so incredibly intense the whole way through, despite the fact that Brazil was down two goals for a lot of it. And they were down for the whole thing, basically. And But I am fully on the Romelu Lukaku train now. He is brilliant, though, like everyone else going into Tuesday. I am also very excited about France's teenage sensation, Kylian Mbappe. (laughs) Tuesday is going to be... Yeah, right? I mean, Tuesday is going to be so much fun. I also want to add that the Croatia-Russia quarterfinal match was absolutely exhausting to watch, in part because all the players looked really tired by end of regulation, into extra time. Even the shootout looked tired. Was it you that tweeted, the ball looks tired as it rolls in? Yes. Yes, that that goal that Vita, the header, the ball, like, slowly rolled into the goal. They all just watched it. They all just kind of looked at it, go past, like, well... Uh, Yeah, I was like, yep, that seems right. It was still thrilling, right? It comes down to PKs. And I'm guessing that England is probably thrilled that they are going to play a Croatia team that has now played two matches in a row that went to PKs. So I guess the question for you all at this point is who are you going to root for? France or Belgium, Croatia or England? And who do you actually think is going to win all of this? Ooh, great question. Lindsay, you want to go first? Go ahead. I mean, I just... The France team is just so good. I think for me, it's between yeah. it's between France and Belgium. But, you know, England, I do have a lot of friends from the UK. But, you know, they just like trashed an Ikea store last night after winning over Sweden. What? <laughs> yeah, you didn't so see that just, video? Yeah, it's just ridiculous. No, I'll go look it up. And all this, it's coming home stuff. It's just really bothering me. <laughs> so it's just annoying me. So I'd be okay with England not winning but honestly I kind of like having you know these teams left who who haven't won in a while and you know it's exciting it's a lot of talented teams that we're left with I read someone who you know said something along the lines of okay if you're not a soccer fan like me this might help you but it's kind of the equivalent of an NCAA tournament where it's not the number one seeds that make it through but it's kind of a lot of like Two and threes, you know, like, so not not the overwhelming favorites, but still like really quality team. So I think that there's just a really exciting chance for just some really great games. I mean, at this point, bring on the masochism, bring on more penalty kicks. I'm all for this. <laughs> bring, bring, on more, bring it all on. Like, let's decide this in the most nail biting, excruciating way possible. <laughs> Yeah, well, no secret that France is clearly the, jokingly, of course, the last African team in the tournament. And me and Brenda were joking about this, like, last week on either our hot, I think it was on our hot take. And Brenda was like, who's going to dance? And I was like, well, you know, everybody on the Twitter sphere has dubbed France the last African team. And literally right after we did that hot take, they posted a video of, like, dancing to a jujube on the airplane. (laughs) and I was like see exactly so they um I'm super all in for them but I also really like all the black people on the England team I really like Jesse Lingard 
<laughs> cracks me up. I may or may not have procrastinated one weekend by watching a ridiculous number of videos with him. Actually, with him and Pogba playing FIFA 18. Literally, I watched like a 20 huh. minute video of them playing <laughs> the game together. Which, That's the amazing. things you do Sounds to wonderful. avoid writing, guys. <laughs> oh my gosh. That could be its own hour long podcast. <laughs> so, I would really like to see, despite it being kind of like an all Euro final and just kind of like over that. And yeah, Belgium, Croatia, yeah, like they don't do it for me as much as like. France I'm definitely pulling for France over England but if it was a France England final I think I would be pretty happy with that I don't know you guys I I really like Lukaku yeah I really would love to see him I don't know it's so hard I find the France Belgium game I don't really care sorry everyone who wins England Croatia (laughs) but I kind of wish the France Belgium was the final so I can understand that could have I don't know. I just I'm excited. I'm glad. I think it'll be great. I know, like it was a fun story, and there's there's some other players, but like I'm glad that Croatia was able to get Russia out. Like I just think that was kind of necessary going into the semifinals. <laughs> like it had just become a little bit of a a distraction. I think. All right. So predictions: France over Belgium, Belgium over France. Yes, France is I my think prediction. We'll win it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And who are yeah. you taking in the Croatia game? I think England will do it. I, I mean, Croatia, they have such a disadvantage. They are going to be so tired. Was there any other things that happened in the... I don't. Think- I mean, Neymar took a ton of crap for all of this. Oh, yeah. That was like the story of Whatever. the last week. That was a whole story. Neymar challenge memes. Yeah. He deserved the scrutiny this time. I mean, like that dive was at the Mexico game. With the somersaults. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that was a lot there was that was it the new york times that interviewed drama teachers oh, wait, about serious? Acting <laughs> and, and like found him wanting <laughs> i was like funny. yeah okay so yeah i mean I, I mean this time around that was bad i was like mm. i mean they were talking about giving him a the commentators the u.s commentators who i never know whether or not i should trust anything they're saying but like they were talking about giving neymar that he might have gotten or deserved a red card in the last game because of a dive he did in the in the penalty box towards the end. I want to say so. Yeah, one I don't of know the questions that I heard posting a lot was you know around the use of VAR, which has been pretty you know I think has been pretty solid this tournament. But one of the things that I heard a small discussion happening was if we have VAR now and we see everybody kind of go down and hold something and then we can clearly see that they were never touched. If there's a way, even if it's not in game, but there's a, some speculation if essentially they might use VAR, especially to root out diving later by saying, all right, now we're going to do kind of a backwards assessment to say you clearly are taking 25 somersaults and doing the matrix and nobody has laid a finger on you right that's interesting yeah as like another way of policing it right because in the slow-mo you can see i mean i don't watch a ton of soccer football and i do find that part i understand it's part of the game and it's a strategy and all that stuff. I also just find it exhausting as a viewer of yeah. the game. <laughs> so totally because it would be interesting if they used VAR to do that. Also, because I think I'm like fairly empathetic person. And every time I hear see somebody rolling around, I'm like, oh, it's the ACL. Oh, no. Like, I know, right? Can- and then they're up and going. They're like crying. But then, and then it sucks because like at the end of regulation in the Croatia game the goalie went down right and they didn't have subs and he like you have to really figure it out you're like no he really does look injured like I really don't think this is fake like I think something has happened and it just like assessing the whether or not it's they're really injured is like a whole thing and so then as he progressed because he didn't leave the game and I was like I really think he was hurt like I feel like what he's doing right now is a big deal but I also don't know because that was a really good strategic move to act injured because they all got to drink water at the end of regulation. So I don't, yeah, I have no idea 
how to assess those things because of all of it. Well, and one way that that makes things really complicated is when it comes to concussions. <laughs> and that's a whole nother topic. But, yes. uh, you know, good there's point. no really good concussion protocol. And because there aren't extra substitutions allowed, if there is this, you know, the possibility of a brain injury, then there's so much guesswork that goes into it. I mean, you know, even to do an initial concussion assessment takes a good, you know, five to 10 minutes. And that's just for a very bare bones initial one. But you don't get that in soccer, you know, you have to keep playing. So that's a big deal. And there's a lot of talk about whether or not FIFA and soccer should extend the rules a little bit and make have a special rule in there if there's a possibility for a head injury. And in my opinion, will that be abused occasionally? Yes. But is that worth it if you help a few more people have healthy brains? Yes. <laughs> so that's right. my hot take. I think that's a great point. And they have been trying to figure out how to deal with concussions in the football world, soccer world, whatever, a lot more, which is why they have this new rule now that you're supposed to stop play immediately if it looks like somebody's injured with a head injury. But we've seen over numerous games that doesn't happen right away where somebody's rolling on the ground after they've collided their heads. But because people are used to people rolling on the ground, there's not an immediate stoppage of play either by players recognizing that and kind of seating the ball out of bounds or the ref stopping play formally. And so there's clearly more work to be done on that front. And as we move forward to the semifinals and then eventually the finals, hopefully we'll see, you know, less diving and more <laughs> accountability and head injuries. And also, of course, really, really great matches. But the World Cup wasn't the only sporting event that was happening this week. Lindsay, you have Wimbledon updates for us? Yeah, Wimbledon is a crapshoot, <laughs> I would say, is my yeah. official analysis. Yeah. I kind of love it when <laughs> tournaments get really chaotic. And if the women's side of the Wimbledon, there's only one of the top 10 seeds remaining. Of course, Serena is there, seated as number 25. Um, she's still in the tournament, but... Honestly, I don't think it's as bad as everyone is making it out to be. I think that there are still so many talented players. I mean, you still have Angelique Kerber, who just two years ago was number one in the world, was beating Serena in majors, you know, was a great rival for Serena. You still have Yelena Ostapenko, who, of course, won the French Open last year and is up to number 12 in the world. Uh, Daria Kasatkina is another exciting player to watch. Karolina Pliskova, who also beat Serena in a major just a year before. She's still there. So... There's a lot to still be excited about. Of course, you guys will be listening to this after the round of 16, which will take place on Manic Monday at Wimbledon. So after that, we'll have a better sense of how the tournament is shaping up. And I think if a few more of these big names can make it to the quarterfinals, that people are going to actually be surprised at how competitive this still is. The biggest surprises for me in the first week were, you know, seeing my beloved Madison Keys lose to Rodina. She just played a pretty terrible match. I wasn't as surprised about Sloane Stevens crashing out in the first round because Sloane is inconsistent. <laughs> Love her, but she, listen, I'm, you know, there's no need to lie and say that I was shocked by that. I just, I wasn't. Serena's been playing pretty well. The grass suits her game, of course, so well. She's looking much more comfortable than she did at the French Open. Her serve is much more of a weapon on the grass. I don't think it's a given that she's going to be the champion by any means. And I get really frustrated when people say that it is a given, not because I discount Serena and what she does, but because I think that when people say that it's automatic, that Serena's going to win, what they're doing is they're discounting actually how hard what she's doing is, <laughs> you know, and they're turning her into this yes, superhero, which is not helpful. Turning people into superheroes is, is stupid and unhelpful. And we all do it sometimes, myself included. But no, Serena, what Serena has to do is really hard. The players left in the draw are really talented. There are multiple players capable of beating Serena, even on a good day for her, let alone on a day where she might be struggling in a comeback. So this isn't a foregone conclusion. Respect both Serena and the rest of the field by acknowledging that. <laughs> and let's just kind of enjoy this final week. What do you guys think? I think that's a great point. Um, there's kind of a celebrate 
so celebratory tweet about black women this week that was like black women are superheroes and it was a photo montage of Bree Newsom who took down the confederate flag in the carolinas it was the black woman who scaled the statue of liberty this past week to unfurl a abolish ice sign and it was like a other kind of montage of that and there was a, a hearty discussion you know led by black women online who was just reminding people that black women are also human and there's a particular way that black women like Serena get put into this like superhero trope, whether it's in the realm of sports or in activism or otherwise, that exactly what you said discounts the hard work, the skill, the smarts, the bravery, whatever that actually takes to get there. It's not a foregone conclusion. And I think that that fits into a larger discussion that's happening simultaneously that I wanted to highlight. Yeah. And just, just to round that out, I mean, I obviously think it diminishes Serena. And I also think, and I get a lot of Serena fans often don't like me because I really like to champion a lot of the other women on the tour and point out how good they are too. And it's not, it's honestly, in my opinion, what I'm doing is highlighting how great Serena is even better, right? You have to actually take into account that there are these women. And sometimes I think that the fetishization is the wrong word, but it's close to that of this superhero Serena. Just really what it does is it ends up like, you know, glossing over a lot of other amazing stories. I saw there was a tennis.com article that was talking about a player, Mandy Manila, who is nowhere near Serena's talent level. And nobody is saying that she is. And she's a a French tennis player. And she played at Wimbledon four and a half months credit and uh, pregnant. And tennis.com said something along the lines of, you know, that Manila, you know, quote, pulled a Serena and played while pregnant. And there were all these mean tweets seeming like, you can't pull a Serena unless you win. And I was like, really, guys? Like, she just did this incredible thing. She was, you know, and you know what she means, that she played while pregnant, not that she won a Grand Slam. She's not comparing her talent level to Serena's. And so that made me really mad and put a really bad taste in my mouth because what they're doing is they're discounting this other woman's accomplishment in a way to try and praise Serena, which is just not, that's not, we don't have to do that. <laughs> right, exactly. But I also think the point that you made, Linz, is, is the way that it takes away from women's tennis as a whole, the same way that like all the kind of praise are saying, oh, it's inevitable right. that UConn's going to win, completely ignores how good the field of women's college basketball is under them and how they don't win <laughs> you know, every year and how there's like really competitive teams that are coming for them. And it just like denigrates, I think, the whole sport if we can't see past one person or one team. Jess? Yeah. And I was just going to add on and I know I already mentioned it, but in being Serena, you get so much about her training to get back to this point. And she works so hard, like, and she struggles. I mean, it is really just such a thing to watch. It's been a really hard journey for her to get here and watching her play like she does look good. I think, you know, she's Serena. I I don't want to discount her. Um but she looks like she's working hard out there. Like <laughs> like and I totally agree Lindsay that that whole narrative really does take away from the outstanding play of all the other women that she has to go up against. And yeah, I'm I'm bothered by that as well. As much as I love her and I tweet about how much I love her and how much I love the way that she plays tennis. It does bother me how it's this foregone conclusion that that is if she just steps onto the court and it just happens as if there isn't all this other stuff that goes into it, including that she's going up against some of the very best tennis players in the world. Indeed. Lindsay? Yeah, I guess we should mention that men are playing this tournament too. <laughs> but honestly, they're you know, we're, we seem to be marching towards an Adal Federer final 10 years after their 2008 epic. That's very exciting for some people. <laughs> for me, I'm really, really ready. <laughs> for some people. I'm really, 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 really ready for new names to really emerge on the men's side. And unfortunately, while on the women's side, you do have all these women who are actually, you know, Grand Slam champions and have beaten legends, you know, on the big stages that I mentioned. On the men's tour, there's just a lot of potential, but you haven't seen a lot of these younger players really make a push at the majors. So, you know, we still have, you know, Djokovic is still there. He's hanging on. You have, like I said, Nadal. Federer's looked phenomenal. It is his tournament right now. He should absolutely be the favorite. But, 
you know, men's tennis to me continues to underwhelm slightly as we have this old guard still dominating. And I don't want to discount what they're doing because it's incredible, but a little more freshness would help me. Yeah. Well, I won't lie. I would relish the opportunity to have another picture of Federer and, and Serena so they can do a TBT with uh, the times that they've Absolutely. taken the winning picture <laughs> together. But speaking on winning Wimbledon, I do want to acknowledge that this past Friday, July 6th, was Althea Gibson Day. Thea Gibson was the first African-American to win at Wimbledon on July 6, 1957. And given this history, I wanted to do an interview with my good friend uh, and colleague, Ashley Brown, who is assistant professor of history up at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and who's writing a forthcoming biography on Althea, the first full-length treatment of her life. So here it is. We're going to head right into the scholar spotlight, which is what I'm now calling interviews with scholars. P.S. We'll head right into the scholar spotlight with Ashley, <laughs> with Ashley Brown about her book on Althea Gibson. I am joined now by Dr. Ashley Brown. Ashley is an assistant professor of history and Afro-American studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining the pod today. Oh, thanks for having me on. So you're working on a book about Althea Gibson, and this is the first scholarly treatment, full-length treatment of this magnificent woman. It's tentatively entitled The Match of Her Life. I would love for you to tell us how you got to this project. Where did this all start? So this project dates back to essentially 2000, pardon me, 2011. And I was in a graduate seminar at George Washington University, which is where I earned my PhD. And I was in a course that was called the historiography of race and sex through African-American biography. And I enjoyed the class very much. At the same time, I was interested in African-American female athletes. And already I had noticed a void in terms of biographical studies of black women athletes. One of the best biographies of a black athlete that I know of is Arnold Rampersad's biography of Jackie Robinson. And Althea Gibson, of course, has been called the Jackie Robinson of tennis. And so I found myself thinking, well, gosh, what was her life like? This is an African-American woman who integrated two elite sports. She's best known for her role in the integration of tennis. So long before Arthur Ashe, Althea Gibson played at Wimbledon and what's now the U.S. Open in 1951 and 1950, respectively. And then in 1957 and 1958, she had those phenomenal years in which she won Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and, of course, successfully defended those titles. But what isn't as well-known is that Gibson was also the first African-American woman to have playing privileges on the Ladies Professional Golfers Association Tour. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, what a woman. This is someone who went through just amazing challenges and difficulties in not one sport, but in two. This is someone that we need to learn more about. And so that's essentially the, the story of how this began. Dope. So I feel like Althea Gibson's name is kind of like Wilmer Rudolph's. It's something that's superficially thrown around a lot. On this day in history, Althea broke a color barrier in February when we roll out the Black History Month posters. So what is your kind of perception of the way Althea's life is remembered or perhaps misremembered in the lay public? I think that's a great point about Gibson as what we might think of as a, a factoid. I was certainly familiar with her career in tennis. Actually, I happen to be from South Carolina as well. And so from a very young age, I knew about her as this amazing and supposedly rare uh, black tennis champion. But there's so much more to her story than that. I think that we also have to grapple with thinking about the Great Migration when we think about Gibson. She was born in South Carolina, but her family moved to Harlem by the late 1920s. So that's an opportunity for us to think about African Americans moving forward and, as the saying goes, protesting with their feet. Her family was definitely part of that tradition in that way. 
I think we also want to think about the role of historically black colleges and universities in terms of the development of African-American athletes. Gibson was a graduate of Florida A&M University in Tallahassee, and she was mentored and supported by their famous football coach, Alonzo Jake Gaither. So Florida A&M is definitely a part of this story, as is Lincoln University, which is in Jefferson City, Missouri, and she taught there at that HBCU for two years in the mid-1950s. Also, moving beyond the factoids about Gibson in terms of being this African-American sports pioneer is also the importance of her tours for the United States uh, Department of State, for the State Department. So I think many people are familiar with Louis Armstrong, Dizzy Gillespie, and others who were cultural ambassadors during the Cold War for the United States. Althea Gibson was the same on, on the sports side of things. So I think those are at least three areas um, that enable us to think more about the nuances of Gibson's story that help us to move beyond Gibson alone as moving forward, as succeeding in tennis, but getting us to think about Gibson as a part of a community that enabled her to have the success that she had. Yes, certainly. So can I ask you, as another uh, practitioner of Black women's athletic history, if you will just comment on or speak to what the process of uncovering this story of uncovering her life is, what does it mean to do a history of Black women in the Jim Crow era? I think one has to be really creative and imaginative in terms of thinking about sources, first of all. So I'm fortunate with Gibson in the sense that she was so very well known. And so that has meant in terms of newspaper material, there's quite a bit. She was covered tremendously in the African-American press, actually from a very young age, because she was an exceptional athlete in Harlem. So in the early 1940s, there were a few pieces that talk about her brief young career as a, a basketball player in Harlem, but also as a bowler. Um, But, of course, as she grew older and as she became this, we might think of her as this recruit in the integration battle in sports, she's also covered in mainstream white newspapers. So you can find stories about Gibson, of course, in the New York Times, and then as her career moves forward, you see even more about her in publications such as Time and Sports Illustrated. Incidentally, she's actually the first black female athlete to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. So we have to think uh, about where to find her in terms of the African-American press and the mainstream white press, but also because this is someone who traveled abroad, also finding stories about Gibson that were in newspapers that were in Great Britain and other parts of the world. And then that also leads us to think about others' perspectives on her. So not simply black Americans or white Americans, but what do people of color abroad think about Gibson? Many of them actually received her in somewhat heroic terms because this was another person of color who I think in the eyes of many people of color abroad was triumphing over white supremacy, that she was a symbol of the success that black and brown people could have. I also think that it's important for us to step beyond narratives that are entirely about oppression and about sadness and about downtroddenness, honestly, when we think about Gibson and other Black female athletes, that certainly there were hardships in their lives because of race and because of gender, but these were also individuals who were really strong-willed and who really did not want to, I think, accept the limitations that were placed upon them. And so this is definitely true in Gibson's case. She talks a great deal in her autobiography about really the role of gender in terms of the frustrations that it caused her. But over and over again, we also see moments in which she really would not take that line down, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so those sorts of things happened to her in high school when, of course, these were segregated schools in Wilmington, but when when black female classmates seemed to pick on her essentially for not being a more of a representative black woman in the sense of the way in which she dressed or carried herself. Gibson heard that. 
she writes it without being upset about it, but she didn't give up. And so she continued to play sports with boys and men. She continued to be the most dominant player on the high school team. And even when she's on the State Department tours and she's experiencing segregation in various ways, she continues to go out on the court and to give it her best. So I think to answer your question, we have to think expansively about sources when we're doing this kind of work. And we also have to be willing to acknowledge the trials and the hardships, but also be willing to look for the ways in which Black female athletes were most definitely resilient. Mm. Yeah, I really like how you use biography to get at all these other issues. So to kind of put you into the present, uh, what is your kind of estimate of Althea's legacy? When you're looking at modern tennis, do you see her influence? And what is the role of Black women in tennis today? Well, I think we certainly can't talk about African-Americans in tennis without paying attention to what happened before with Althea Gibson's rise. That's for sure. Unfortunately, I, I find myself thinking about the challenges that Gibson faced to whenever I hear or read criticisms of the Williams sisters. Mm-hmm. And so Althea Gibson certainly faced within the press, and I think from some peers, uh, she certainly faced unfortunate statements about her own physique and about the way she uh, tended to her hair, groomed her hair. So unfortunately, you know, that's a connection that has to be made. I also think that when there are discussions about women in sports in terms of their bodies, whether these are black women or white women, I find myself thinking about Gibson because she was about 5'10 and a half. Her weight fluctuated. I've I've seen between maybe 130 and about 145 pounds or so. And I point this out because I feel like 60 years ago as well as today that there's still all of this interest and scrutiny about the way uh, female athletes look. Mm -hmm. And this is something we have to consider, right? You know, I I don't think that male athletes get quite the same amount of attention in that way. But there are these standards around beauty and around femininity, and female athletes are always judged by, judged according to those kinds of standards. And I will also add in terms of the style of play, right? So there are still these debates in tennis about of playing with the grace or playing with force as if one cannot do both of those things. And so that's something that Gibson certainly faced, criticisms that perhaps um, she was too much of a power player, but then at the same time, particularly in the early and mid-1950s, when she began to try to um, expand her game, right, to have the powerful and forceful serve as well as forehand, but then she also tried to I think add more versatility, particularly when it came to her backhand, that she had critics, you know, who said that she should really try to stick with only the power game. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Gibson certainly recognized that there's also, of course, the mental aspect to the game. And one of the things that I love about this project is reading newspaper articles in which she talks about this, in which she talks about wanting to be a more versatile player, but also in which she talks about what it's like to be a champion someone who's at the end of her career and folks wanting to maybe rise above her the way she wanted to rise above the Doris hearts of the world uh, when she began her career. So I think Gibson's legacy is really quite well-rounded. It's everything from the physical aspect of the game to the mental to also just a story about a female athlete who's, a female athlete who's persevering against all kinds of odds. I also have another facet of her legacy that I have a thought about in my head, and I was wondering if you could um, speak to it and see if, let me try it on for size. We live in a moment where there's a certain celebration of Black women at the upper echelons of tennis, certainly the Williams sisters, Sloane Stevens as well, for instance. And there's been this kind of effort to crown Madison Keys, for instance, within this legacy of Althea, Zena Garrison, the Williams sisters. And there's been some hesitancy on Madison's part, who Madison, of course, is biracial and she's black and white. And she has been really hesitant to say, I'm 
to be part of this legacy of black women in tennis instead of opting to say I'm not black or white, I'm Madison. And this reminded me rhetorically of Althea Gibson, who at a time when the black press was clamoring for her to be this kind of next Jackie Robinson or kind of race leader in terms of integration, where she sometimes pushed back and said, you know, she didn't want to be a symbol. She just wanted to play. And I was wondering if you could comment on that kind of rhetorical tension and that legacy. You know, this is kind of the rub about Gibson, and I'm glad you brought this up. I thought a little bit, too, about um, Madison, Madison Keyes' situation. Of course, she's biracial. Gibson did identify as, I mean, the language of that time was a Negro. And this is something that I'm really trying to tease out in the book, because she received quite a bit of scrutiny, particularly in 1956-1957, about how she identified. Mm. And again, Gibson did identify as a Negro. You know, she would use the phrase, our people or my people. She actually spoke to the NAACP in the late 1950s. She was something of a darling of the NAACP, actually, because they saw her as this uh, triumphant symbol of an African-American who rose from the language at that time would have been the slums of Harlem, which is a phrase that was often used in coverage about Gibson, who rose from Harlem uh, to become this champion of, of an elite sport. So Gibson, Gibson was also very much a product of middle-class African-Americans, and honestly, that late 1940s, early 1950s period, that kind of pre-civil rights, building up to the civil rights moment of someone who identified as African-American at the same time, I think she saw a certain level of importance in you know, what her success might mean to others, to other African-Americans. But she also had to be very careful about when and how and whether she spoke about race. And to be honest with you, getting back to your previous question about legacies, I think that's something that is still germane when it comes to African-American athletes Mm -hmm. um, and to really athletes of color. Gibson, particularly as, for the most part, the only Black tennis player at the elite level at that time, I think she had to be very mindful about what she said about race for two reasons. First of all, the possibility that she might lose opportunities, but then also realizing that she represented other black tennis players and she wanted to make sure that she didn't say or do anything that might cut off the path, that might shorten the path for those who came after her and who wanted to triumph and have the same level of success or certainly the same opportunities that she had. So it's all, I think, very, very complicated. That We also need to think about the black sports press and, and the advocacy, right, that is very much a part of their legacy. But Gibson was on the ground living with racism certainly every day. I don't think she necessarily shied away from that. But at the same time, as an athlete, I think, She was somebody who also believed in compartmentalization, which is to say that she dealt with racism and sexism on a regular basis. But when it came to playing and basically to going to the court, which was her workplace, she wanted to be able to put those thoughts aside and basically show what she could do. Well, I certainly look forward to reading your account of her complicated and intriguing life. Dr. Ashley Brown, Ashley, thank you so much for joining Burn It All Down today to talk about your work. Thank you, Amir. Have a great day. All right. So free agency was happening in the NBA. I don't know if you, uh, you know, saw any mention of that on your Twitter timeline. How's Boston doing, Amir? Uh, so, of course. How's Boston doing real quick? <laughs> you How's say? Boston doing? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It was amazing. What were some of your reactions to NBA free agency? I I tweeted that it's my favorite men's sport right now, NBA free agency. (laughs) 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 I just love it so much. The social media element of it, the holding your breath, waiting for news. It's very, very exciting. For me, the biggest signing was Tony Parker coming to the Charlotte Hornets. (laughs) 
because I worship Tony <laughs> Parker. I'm a big Spurs fan, but you know, Charlotte is my hometown team. So, you know, I'm sure that's the big news everyone is talking about. So, you know, I just want to admit that I too am loving that news. But look, it's it's exciting. The amount of money these players are getting is great. I wish they could get even more money. I wish the owners got less money. I'm all for it. I love players taking their careers into their own hands this way. It's thrilling to watch. It is a little bit different, but that's not a bad thing. Yeah, Jess? Yeah, I was thankful that LeBron made his decision really quickly. Yeah, it was Twitter. And I I totally agree. Like, I don't follow the NBA that closely. And so I don't totally always get the significance of these moves. I have to like look into it when Twitter starts freaking out. But I just really appreciate the social media aspect of it. It is really fun to watch the news come down and and people figure out what's going on. And yeah, I don't know. I don't with the biggest I, I I will say about Tony Parker that if you haven't read Pop's letter about Tony Parker, and how much Parker has meant to him in the Spurs. It's really beautiful. And I don't have anything really more beyond that. Yeah. So Lindsay, you brought up the pay. And I think that it's possible to hold two things here. One, it's really great to people for people, like you said, to be in control of their labor in, in, in some way, especially watching LeBron. LeBron gets a lot of critics because, of course, this is his third like decision, right? And the fanfare around his first decision was really overblown, and that was a lot. But the ability to have a hand in it in a way that, you know, especially like, say, in the National Football League, where people are kind of cut very ruthlessly and don't really have guaranteed contracts and don't have a a lot of these kind of labor protections, there is something about NBA free agency that hits on some of those points. But the other thing is there's a massive amount of money in this. And that led to some WNBA players becoming quite vocal during NBA free agency Follow the following the announcement that LeBron signed a hundred and fifty four million four year contract with the Lakers. Asia Wilson, the rookie, took to Twitter and basically tweeted, "15 mil must be nice. We're over here looking for an M, but Lord, let me get back in my lane." Including a gif of a woman closing a door, and that set off a night. Of- <laughs> People reacted so calmly and collectively and yeah. rationally to that, right? Right, Amira? (laughs) As they do about tweets about women's basketball. They were just like, this is a wonderful point, Asia. Thank you for bringing it up. No, not at all. Instantly, there was detractors um, everywhere. I maintain that there's something about women's basketball. I said this during March Madness. Something about women's basketball that brings out the droves of misogynistic trolls to Twitter comments that I don't necessarily see in soccer or track or whatever. Women's basketball seems to be, for me, like the epicenter of this. So instantly people are like, oh, maybe if you were one millionth of the basketball player LeBron is, you get paid equally. And so Asia was like, oh, it's about skill set. Emoji questioning face. Because I heard a bench player gets more than dot, 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 never mind. There was discussions about dunking, but then I really was heartened to see that people like Kayla McBride joined the conversation and started to add her own points. Skylar Diggins-Smith retweeted Asia's tweet and said, a little bit louder now, but get your money, black man, (laughs) which I thought was a perfect way of talking about the duality of this. So I think that that it was nice to see that conversation. Did you guys see any of that unfolding on Twitter? Oh, yeah. I was wrapped by it. Like, I loved it. It was really amazing. To I mean, Amani McGee Stafford got in there. Diamond to Shields was tweeting about it. And you're right. There is something specifically about the way that men respond to women's basketball. It appears to be incredibly threatening is <laughs> the only way to really read it. And, you know, so it was all the like, go back to the kitchen. No one watches the WNBA. But the women are very smart, of course, and savvy and you know, this is not just that they're saying they should be paid more, but like, you know, the NBA players get a larger percentage of revenue by far than the WNBA players do. And like for all the people who keep telling them over and over again that this is about how they don't, that this is about overall revenue and there's not enough of it. And yeah, the women know that, (laughs) dipshits. Like part of what they're doing is pointing out that you should be paying attention, that like they work incredibly hard and they play incredibly well. Like the idea that it's not 
worthy of attention is built into this narrative. And that's bullshit. And that's part of what they're calling out and noting the difference here. And the idea that these people need to tell the WNBA players this, it's like, I was very, I don't want to say proud. That's like the wrong word, but it was amazing to watch so many of them respond to this in that moment collectively. Yeah, I've got a piece coming out about this this week. So hopefully all of you will read it. And I'm trying to save up some of my rants for that. But (laughs) I will say that like, I will never understand how people can look at a sparse crowd in a WNBA game and not think and think that there's something wrong with the product as as opposed to there's something wrong with our society and with the people that there aren't more people there that we don't appreciate right. this more right like cuz that's to me where the problem lies i mean i i'm courtside at all these mystics games covering them you know i i i've gotten way more into the sport and i didn't grow up watching women's basketball let me be clear i did not grow up with a family that really you know pushed women's sports or was in that way. They, I mean, I, w- I did play basketball, but I never watched women play basketball. You know, you know, we would watch it at the Olympics. I didn't grow up with this being a part of my life, with this being a part of my routine. And it took until, you know, it's really just the past few years that I've become really gotten really into it and, and started learning more about the game. And it's not because I'm trying to make a point. It's because it's fun to watch. And these women are really good. And, and I think that it, I get sad when I think about how much WNBA history I've missed and how much women's basketball history I've missed because this wasn't a normal part of my media diet growing up because I was a sports fan but didn't see this on ESPN, didn't see this on SportsCenter, didn't grow up with family that was watching it. That makes me sad, not because I feel like the players were doing something wrong, but because our culture was doing something wrong that didn't introduce me to this. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I just, that's to me where this frustrating disconnect lies. Uh, yeah, women's basketball is a long way to go, but it's – look, let's just be be blunt here. It is women's basketball, and I've talked to multiple players about this. It sits at this – and we've talked about this on the show. It sits at this intersection of sexism, racism, and homophobia that triggers the fragile masculinity in men like nothing I have ever seen. And it also triggers something in a lot of women who aren't as forthright to it, but don't feel as comfortable being big time fans of it. Don't feel like it's as cool. Don't feel like it's accepted. And I just, we have to find a way to get through that, but we're never going to get through that unless we deal with the sexism, racism, and homophobia that's at the root of this. Right. And I think that the thing that Candace Parker said about a month ago is, you know, female ballers don't get disrespected by NBA players. They understand the time, effort, and skill set to perfect a jump shot, for instance. You don't have to do a dunk to perfect a mid-range game or to shoot a three or to be able to handle. It's usually dudes that don't play basketball that disrespect the WNBA. And I think that, like, that was echoing in my head when this was happening. The other thing was that pisses me off is that the jokes are so lame. It's literally always about a kitchen or a sandwich. So there was a tweet about a a rookie, I forget what rookie, who met Diana Taurasi. And he said a quote, he was so shocked. He was so excited. She was like the Michael Jordan of the WNBA. And the first comment literally was, she's the Michael Jordan of making sandwiches. And it had so many likes. And I'm like, this is not even funny. It's not even creative. It's not even clever. Like, and it was the same joke over and over and over again. And it was just like, I, and I said this before, like, I literally don't get the mentality of running to a status to make a joke about sandwiches. It's really infuriating, but I wanted to yeah get a new hobby. Exactly. Exactly. But I wanted to leave us uh, with Asia's words on this because she actually noticed the same pattern and, and addressed it. Which I really like. She said, Ooh, the men in my mentions are showing out. I hit a nerve, I see. Stop telling me to get back in the kitchen and stay in the kitchen at all. <laughs> I can't cook. Ask my parents, my bae, friends, all of them. No. Stop trolling and tweeting me that, about that. I'll burn the kitchen down. Upside down, smiley face. Things to burn. Jess, what are you burning this week? 
Yeah. So if you follow me on Twitter, this probably isn't going to be a surprise, but I'm going to. So Jim Jordan is a Republican U.S. representative from Ohio. He's been a rep since 2007, and he's a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, which is an ultra conservative group of House Republicans. He is a staunch Trump supporter. And after Paul Ryan said that he was not going to run for re-election, Jordan's name went to the top of the list for the next potential Speaker of the House, a position that puts you third in line to be president. But Jim Jordan, in his pre-politician days, he used to be the assistant wrestling coach at Ohio State University. And his time there overlapped with a former team doctor, Richard Strauss. Strauss was the doctor at the university from the late 1970s through, I think, 1998, so a couple decades. Jordan was an assistant coach from 1986 to 1994, so eight years on the tail end of Strauss's time there. This last April, following the sentencing hearing for and the media attention on Larry Nasser, which is a case that we have talked a lot about on this program, a former wrestler wrote an email to higher-ups at Ohio State telling them that while he was there, it was well known that Strauss was sexually harassing and abusing his patients, many of them student-athletes. Ohio State opened an investigation and has confirmed, quote, that investigators have received confidential reports of sexual misconduct committed by Strauss from former athletes and 14 sports and former patients in student health services. And I just want to be clear that that doesn't mean 14 people. That, that applies that there's more than that that they have received reports from. Jordan denies that everyone knew because he says he didn't know. These denials have now led to seven former wrestlers coming forward over the last week, and by the time you listen to this, it might be more, to say that Jordan did know and that he is lying about this. And some have candidly said that it hurts their feelings to hear him do so. Of course, because it's politics in 2018 and a story about sexual abuse, there are conspiracy theories suggesting the timing of these reports are because Jordan could be the next Speaker of the House and this is all in the service of political gain for Democrats. Jordan, you know, he could have admitted from the jump that he knew that he didn't do anything and that he's forever regretful of that decision and incredibly sorry for the harm that he did not report or stop. That if he had known better how to handle the situation, he would have, but that his ignorance is no excuse for his cowardice. But he can't do that. Because of politics, because he supports a president who's been accused of sexual harassment and assault, a president who happily admits to assaulting women because he can get away with it. Jim Jordan can't say today that he'd do something differently than he did in the years he was an assistant coach at Ohio State, because he, then he'd actually have to do something differently in his job right now, today. The final thing, I want to acknowledge directly the wrestlers who've come forward, because most of them are also victims, right? I want to spend just just this brief amount of time thinking of the victims of Strauss who have to interact with this news. Jim Jordan could have made this uncovering of years of serial abuse less terrible than this, and he chose not to. So today I'm throwing Jordan's cowardice and his denials on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Lindsay? So we like to burn very serious things like what Jess just did. And sometimes it's important to also burn the trivial things because they matter too <laughs> in like a little a little world. Yes. So I want to yeah, burn they do. this week Ted Leonsis, <laughs> the owner of the Washington Mystics. He also owns the uh, Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals and the Washington Valor, oh. the arena football <laughs> team. A uh, very, very rich man. Very, very powerful man. So ever since Elena Deladon came to Washington, D.C., to the Mystics last spring, I have noticed that Ted does not know how to spell her name. <laughs> she is the best basketball player he has, period. Like, he, is, she is way more accomplished than any of the Wizards. <laughs> and he spells her name D-E-L-L-A. Space D O N N E. So it's D E L L E Deladon, not Deladon. Like it's just not how you spell it. And I remember noticing it this year, last year when she was first signed. And this week I went back to check and see. I'm sure he's learned how to spell it now. I thought to myself, no, he's still doing it. <laughs> She's been on the team for 16 months and he will tweet links to articles where her name is spelled correctly. <laughs> 
and he will still spell it incorrectly in the tweets. Wow. We're talking about tweets from last week. <laughs> like this is, I know it's a little thing, but it's just so infuriating. Like you wouldn't, I'm sorry, you would not do this to a men's player. And if you did, you would be called out by so many media people mocked on blogs. Deadspin would be writing about it. You know, you just w- wouldn't be able to get away with this. Like she's a, she's a WNBA MVP <laughs> and you can't spell her name properly. Burn. <laughs> just burn. <laughs> burn. 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 Yeah, so from the very serious to the trivial, I think what I want to burn this week is like, it's not a specific thing. It's more just some the misogyny in like sporting spaces in general Um, as a fan. This week, I've been frequenting many sports bars to watch the World Cup at 10 a.m. in the morning. I also took my kids to a Red Sox game. And by Red Sox game, <laughs> I mean a Nationals game. It was just the Red Sox were in town. And also, we take over the park. So anywho, in all... All of these things, what I was reminded over and over again by the stares or the snide comments or just being on the outside of a fan culture, just being excluded from celebrations or condescended to or needing to beat back the assumption that you don't know what you're talking about or why are you even in this bar and the kind of curiosity of like, how can, why you just, you want to come here and watch the world cup by yourself at 10 in the morning. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what you're doing. And yeah, it's like huh. those things just add up and it's the, they're the little things. And I think that they're important to kind of, I think we're all very used to them, but I wanted to take a moment to stop and say, even though we're used to them, that's not right. And those are the small microaggressions that get women and girls like outside of sporting fan places and sports culture in general, who don't want to go into sports journalism, who don't want to keep playing, who don't want to be a coach, who don't want to, you know, study sports history, whatever it is, because the the things might be small and minor, but when they pile up and they're constant occurrences, it really promotes uh, a fan culture that is so toxic so i just want to burn down that and it's not a specific occurrence but it is something that happens every day and it's something that i'm sick and tired of and i want to burn it down burn after all that burning it's time to celebrate some badass women of the week I want to shout out Si Young Kim, who shot an eight under par in the third round of Thornberry Creek LPGA Classic. And doing that, she tied Annika Sorenstam's 54-hole record of 24 under par. Not only that, but she will go to try to break the 72-hole record of 27 under that she currently is sharing with Sorenstam. So she not only has the opportunity to win the classic this weekend, but also to make history and break a record. I also want to shout out Rebecca Brunson from the Minnesota Lynx, who just became the leading rebounder in the WNBA, as well as Diana Taurasi, who broke yet another record, this time becoming the um, the most field goals in the WNBA. I also wanted to spend a special special shout out and acknowledgement to the Special Olympics, which just concluded this past weekend. Again, hashtag choose to include is really important to highlight the wonderful athletes competing there from 13 year old Sabine Collins of Austin, Texas, who has been in the Special Olympic circuit for two years and was competing in gymnastics all the way to Kathleen Richards of Fresno, California, who's been competing in the Special Olympics for more than 40 years, and all the other competitors competing this past weekend in Seattle. Here's to you. And now, drum roll. Badass Women of the Week goes to Asia Wilson and Kayla McBride and all the other WNBA players who spoke out and continue to push for understanding, pay equity, and general respect. You are our Badass Women of the Week. All right, folks, what's good in your life? Lindsay? Yeah, next weekend I am going home for the first time since January and I'm going to take two days off of work, which I haven't taken any days off this summer. And I get to see my little niece 
and I missed her birthday and she's four. So I get to see her and get to be on the lake a little bit and get to see my family. And I am just really looking forward to getting away for just a few days. So that's what's good for me. Awesome. So my something good is that after a month of being in production, my daughter's show is finally coming up this week. She's doing Singing in the Rain this summer. And it also means the end of driving back and forth from State College to D.C. for her her theater intensive. So I am very excited that we are coming to the last week of this, but also super excited to see her show and to see all the family that comes into town for her show. So that is my something good. Jess? Yeah, I want to say that everyone should go watch season two of Glow on Netflix. I was going to say that last week, but I unfortunately had to miss recording. It is one of the best seasons of television I've ever watched. And it's about a bunch of women. And I just loved it. Like I'm probably going to watch it again because I adored it so much. But I also want to give a quick shout out to my family, to my therapist, to romance novelists in general and sports, specifically Wimbledon and World Cup for getting me through this summer. Those are the things that are good for me right now. Here, here. Well, that's it for this week on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to take a moment to remind you about our Patreon. You can go donate as little as $2 or as much as you want to help keep this show going. We so appreciate our Patreon community and all of our flamethrowers. And we have really exciting things happening over there. A monthly newsletter, opportunities to nominate things for the burn pile, uh, special hot take segments of reactions from everything from the World Cup to more extended interviews. And we have some Burn It All Down swag coming your way very shortly. So please, please please, please check out our Patreon, check out our website, stay up to date with the flamethrowing community. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but it also can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe, rate, let us know what we did, how we can improve. We love to hear from you all. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down or on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod. Also on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. Certainly you can email us email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And of course, check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. There you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. Again, subscribe, share, rate. It helps us continue doing the work we love to do and burn what needs to be burned. That's it from me, Amira Rose Davis, Jessica Luther, and Lindsay Gibbs. See you next week, flamethrowers. And I'm so-